Hi, and welcome to Better Than New, the podcast to help you find a cool used car, truck, or SUV at a price you'll love. I'm your host, Gary Crenshaw, and today I want to tell you about a cool, affordable, short wheelbase two-door SUV that I really like. In fact, I like it so much, it's on a short list of vehicles I might want to buy next. This is one boxy 4x4 that can comfortably tackle your daily commute during the week, then transport you to your favorite deep woods trailhead down a rough and rutted road that you would never attempt to take on with a regular car. Now it sounds like I might be talking about, oh, maybe a Jeep Wrangler, perhaps? Well, that's close, and I do love Jeeps, but this is something similar, but a little different. And I'll reveal what it is and why it's a cool, affordable option for people who love fun, boxy 4x4s in just a moment. So hop in, buckle up, and let's go for a drive. So there's this Japanese company named Isuzu that used to sell passenger vehicles here in the U.S. And maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. If not, that's no surprise, as Isuzu hasn't sold passenger vehicles here in the U.S. since 2009. However, it's likely that you pass Isuzu vehicles out on the road almost every time you go for a drive, because Isuzu is one of the largest suppliers of commercial diesel engines, trucks, and buses globally, and the company still sells passenger trucks and SUVs in other markets, just not the U.S., And that's a shame because the vehicles Isuzu used to sell here were really pretty cool, including the Impulse Turbo Coupe. I don't know if you remember that one, but that was cool. Little turbocharged hatchback coupe. Awesome. There was the Trooper four-door family hauler. That was great. I love those. And the funky Viacross two-door sport utility vehicle that started life as an industry show car and eventually blossomed into a three-year wonder that was sold here in limited numbers from 1999 to 2001. I think there was about mm, 4,500, I want to say, brought to the U.S. Anyway, it's not the car we're talking about today. Today's car does have some similarities, though, in that it is a two-door SUV, but it was never a show car. Instead, it's the shortened wheelbase little brother to one of the most successful Isuzu vehicles ever sold here, the four-door Rodeo SUV. And why does that matter? Because the Rodeo was so good that multiple car makers rebadged and sold it as their own vehicle, including Honda, which rebadged and sold it in the U.S. under the Honda Passport name from 1993 to 2002 which was a long time before Honda started building their own SUVs in-house. So if today's mystery vehicle is related to the Rodeo, is it called a Rodeo? Well, sort of. It's the second-generation Amigo slash Rodeo Sport that was sold in the U.S. for six model years from 1998 through 2003. Now, I'm referring to it as the Amigo slash Rodeo Sport because it was sold under the Amigo name from 1998 to 2000, but it was renamed the Rodeo Sport in 2001 through 2003. Now, as a sidebar, there was a first-generation Amigo sold in the U.S. from 1989 to 1994, but that particular version, which was offered with two different four-cylinder power plants, one that was slow and another one that was slower, is not part of today's cool used SUV recommendation. However, the second-gen version is, and it was available in the U.S. with either rear-wheel drive or four-wheel drive. It could be had with a four-cylinder or a six-cylinder engine, combined with a five-speed manual transmission initially, followed later by an optional four-speed automatic. 
Okay, now that you know today's vehicle, let's dig deeper into the details, starting with the engine options. So Isuzu offered the choice of regular and new extra crispy when it came to engine options for the Amigo slash Rodeo Sport. There was a 2.2-liter inline four-cylinder that made 130 horsepower and 144 pound-feet of torque. That was the regular version. And the new extra crispy was a 3.2-liter 24-valve 4-cam V6 that put out 205 horsepower and 214 pound-feet of torque. In terms of the drivetrain and transmission, these vehicles were sold in both two-wheel drive and four-wheel drive configurations. And the Amigo's four-wheel drive setup wasn't one of the permanent all-wheel drive systems like you might find on, say, an Audi or a Subaru that's intended for use on drive pavement. But it did include a button on the dash that allowed drivers to shift on the fly between two-wheel drive and four-wheel drive for more traction in wet, snowy, or muddy conditions. There was also a separate shift lever that allowed drivers to shift from four-wheel drive high-range gearing to four-wheel drive low-range, and it was initially offered with a five-speed manual transmission and later in 1999 joined by a four-speed automatic. So you eventually had the choice of two transmissions. Personally, I prefer the manual, but the four-speed automatic is a decent transmission, so it's not a bad choice. It's not Well, it's not a bad choice with the six-cylinder, should say. Now, when it comes to performance, I'd say the four-cylinder is adequate with a five-speed manual. Not so much with the automatic, but you definitely want the six-cylinder with its 75 additional horsepower and 70 additional pound-feet of torque. Now, the Holy Grail is really a V6 version with the manual. That's the combination that enthusiasts would probably want to have. Now, Motor Week, back in the day, did a test with a 1998 four-wheel drive Amigo when it first came out. That particular car had the V6 and a five-speed manual, and it was able to run from 0 to 60 miles an hour in 8 seconds flat, which is pretty quick for a two-door SUV from that era. And honestly, it's still quick enough for a daily driver today. Now, the V6 with the automatic is going to be a few ticks slower, but still provides solid acceleration. And again, the four-cylinder should provide adequate, but not exciting acceleration when paired with a manual transmission. And, you know, try to avoid the automatic in a four-cylinder if you can. When it comes to fuel economy, I'd say you can expect to get mid-teens in the city and maybe 20 miles per gallon on the highway. Uh, probably an average of about, you know, 17-ish, maybe 16. But you don't buy this thing for the fuel economy. On the upside, it does run on regular fuel, whether you get the V6 or the four-cylinder. So that's, that's nice, I guess. But you, again, you don't buy this for the fuel economy. You buy it because it's a great runabout that also works well off-road. Now, in terms of the suspension and handling, this is a rugged body-on-frame design, like, like a truck, like a pickup truck, or a Jeep Wrangler. It's not a unibody vehicle like a, you know, like a RAV4 or a CRV. It's something that will really work well off-road. It can take a lot of punishment. So that's good for you off-roading folks, at least if you're going to go you know, back to the trailhead sort of thing. I wouldn't call it a serious off-roader, although I guess it could be. It's kind of a mix, kind of in between maybe where a RAV4 would be and where a Jeep Wrangler Rubicon would be. Kind of fits in the middle. It does have a short wheelbase. It's 96.9 inches. Compare that to the 106.4 for the four-door rodeo that it's based on, and that's about 10 inches shorter. So it's definitely shorter, weighs less too. I think the rodeo is about 3,900 pounds, and this is about 3,700, 3,750, something like that. This does have an independent front suspension and a solid rear axle, which is a pretty standard thing. Um, and it has decent ground clearance, too. It's about 8 inches. It's 7.9 inches 
if you have the base 15-inch wheels or 8.2 inches with the optional 16-inch wheels. Now, MotorWeek, when they ran their test back in 1998, found that it had kind of soft handling and lots of body roll when they're going through a slalom. However, the rack and pinion steering was very precise and it offered a nice highway ride. So totally adequate for a daily driver that could also be a weekend backcountry machine. In terms of wheels and tires, like I mentioned, the standard wheel size was 15 inch. The optional wheel was 16 inches and the 16-inch wheels became standard on the 2000 and later Amigo and Rodeo Sport. So if you want the 16s, you know, get a 2000 and later and you should have them. They're good-looking wheels. It's an alloy wheel. And lots of tire options to choose from in a 16-inch size. The brakes on these vehicles were really good. They came with discs both front and rear. The fronts were ventilated and the rears were solid discs. And ABS or anti-lock braking was standard. In MotorWeek's braking test, the 60 to 0 stopping distance was 124 feet, which is really, really good for an SUV from that era. So definitely decent, although there was a lot of nosedive from the soft suspension, so keep that in mind. But for normal braking, it's going to be just fine. And even in emergency braking with the ABS, it works well. Now, moving on to the interior, these were nicely appointed. I mean, it's not a luxury vehicle or anything, but they did come with supportive cloth front bucket seats with manual adjustments. I'm a big fan of manual adjustments on a, on a car seat, especially in a used car, because it's just one less thing to break. Electric motors and the little buttons and whatnot that work those tend to wear out over time or have issues with electrical connections. So having manual adjustments in the seats, really great. You want to have that. It also came with a nice cockpit. There's easy-to-read gauges, including a large tachometer and speedometer. And it had the typical interior for that era with easy-to-operate knobs and buttons for heat, air conditioning, and fan, and that sort of thing. Nothing fancy, but it works, and it works well. So it's definitely solid. Nice for a day-to-day -day vehicle. Another plus is that there's a lot of legroom for rear seat passengers once they're in the back. There's plenty of room in the front, too, but in the back seat, there was definitely a lot of room. Now, remember, this is a two-door, so on the passenger side or the driver's side, you got to flip the seat forward so people can crawl in the back. But once they're back there, they got plenty of room. That means the extra two or even three people that you carry in the car will be comfortable. Now, the cloth rear bench seat also folds forward for more cargo space when not carrying passengers. However, on the downside, there is no 50-50 or 60-40 split on the rear seat, so that's a bit of a bummer. You can't really carry a third person plus some longer gear by splitting the seat and putting the back seat down on one side or the other. Again, a bit of a bummer, but it is what it is. And while it's nice on the inside, the exterior is what really kind of makes it for me. I'm a big fan of this boxy, rugged, two-door SUV design. And this one has, you know, that standard kind of rear-mounted spare tire on a swing-out door. Now, this short wheelbase SUV stuff is reminiscent of Ford's early Bronco. I'm a huge fan of the early Bronco. Unfortunately, they're incredibly expensive now on the used market. And if you get one of the Resto Mod, you know, there's companies that actually build old but new Broncos from scratch, you're talking like a quarter million dollars. And I'm not kidding when I say that. They're really expensive. Um, the Jeep Wrangler, especially the Jeep Wrangler TJ series, which was available from 1997 through 2006, that's similar to this. And also things like the Dodge Raider, the two-door Mitsubishi Montero, which was sold in the U.S. up until 1989. It's also known as the Pajero Overseas. This vehicle has that kind of look and feel, which I think is cool. 
Uh, they came with a sop top and a hard top. The soft top was only available in 1998 when it first was launched. Later models had the hard top. On the folding top models, it only folded down in the back of the car over the passenger seat, which, you know, isn't like the full top like you might find on a Jeep Wrangler, but it was still kind of cool. You had to zip out the side windows and then reach in and pop a couple of latches and then fold the whole thing back over the rear roll bar, which covered the passenger seats. It was kind of a funky looking roll bar, but it, it worked. These things also came with a pop-up sunroof in the front. Remember, the front of the car had a metal cover or metal top that didn't fold down. And then that was a pop-up sunroof. And you could remove the panel for a more open feel. And the hardtop models, which were available from 1999 onward, had a second pop-up glass sunroof in the top itself, which was cool. Now, when the Amiga was introduced in 1998, it came with kind of an egg crate looking front grille. It was body color. It was fine, but a little, I'd call it plain looking, I guess. And then in 2000, the Amigo, and then also the later Rodeo Sport when it was renamed, got a more aggressively stylized grille. The headlamps were a little bit different. The bumper had kind of a faux brush guard. I personally like it better, but either one looks good. And also, the Amigo slash Rodeo Sport came in some really cool metallic colors. There was copper orange mica, zephyr green metallic, and caprice blue metallic. Those are three of my favorites, along with more typical colors like red, black, silver, and white. Those are good, but I really like the metallic colors. They kind of give it a little bit of a visual upgrade, which is nice. So those are sort of the basic features that came on the Amigo slash Rodeo Sport. But when it comes to finding one, what do you look for? Well, Isuzu sold a little over 35,000 of the second-gen Amigo Rodeo Sports in the U.S. I don't have a breakdown of configurations sold, but basically they were available in two-wheel drive and four-wheel drive, as I mentioned, four-cylinder, six-cylinder, and that five-speed or automatic transmission. Now, they did sell more Amigos than Rodeo Sports. It was about two-to-one Amigo to Rodeo Sport. But at the end of the day, what you really want to look for is condition, condition, condition. The condition of the vehicle matters more than anything else. It matters more than the egg crate versus the faux brush guard grill. It matters more than color. It matters more than features. Although I would say you definitely want a V6 and then transmission is sort of your choice. Now, one thing to remember is that these came in both two-wheel drive and four-wheel drive. They look the same. You know, they both have the same ground clearance. They both have the same look. So you can't just like take a quick glance and go, oh, that's a four-wheel drive or oh, that's a two-wheel drive. I'm often fooled when I'm looking for these. I'll be out, you know, poking around on Craigslist or, you know, offer up or whatever. And I'll see one. I'm like, oh, that's great. It's in a color that I love. And it's, you know, whatever. And then I'll get down to the details. And I'm like, oh, it's two-wheel drive. Oh, look. I live in a place where I want to have four-wheel drive. We get snow here. <laughs> I don't want a two-wheel drive vehicle that looks like a four-wheel drive. This was kind of a problem with a lot of vehicles from that era. I mean, the again, the Rodeo, the four-door version of this, had that same issue. Toyota's 4Runner was sold in both two-wheel drive and four-wheel drive. A lot of vehicles that were four-wheel drive or offered four-wheel drive from that era also had a two-wheel drive version. And that was so they could sell them for a cheaper price, sort of the stripped-down model, if you will. But honestly, you definitely want the four-wheel drive. Don't be fooled by the two-wheel drive versus four-wheel drive thing. Make sure you look for that, okay? Again, I mentioned earlier, the Holy Grail is a V6 model with 4x4 and a manual transmission. If you can drive a manual, I say do it, right? Get the manual. 
The practical choice, uh, I'd say, is probably the V6 with the automatic. It's going to be nice around town, still offer decent acceleration. I would personally avoid the four-cylinder, as I mentioned earlier, especially with the automatic. <laughs> Just, like, don't do it. Yeah, getting 130 horsepower to properly motivate a 3,700-pound body-on-frame truck-based SUV, man, that's tough. Don't do it. It's going to be really slow, okay? But if you must, again, a four-cylinder with a five-speed manual is probably an okay choice. I just, again, I don't recommend it. Now, in terms of looks, I personally prefer the look of the 2000 and later front end. But that's me. I don't think it really matters. Again, I would be focused on condition. Same thing with colors. I also like the more interesting colors. The green, the orange, the, the funky blue. Those are cool, but condition trumps everything. And what do I mean by condition? Well, condition includes a whole raft of stuff, starting with having minimal owners. Now, in something that's 20 years old, it's not always possible to have, you know, a low number of owners. And you can have a multi-owner vehicle and still be okay. But if you want to have the greatest chance of finding something that's in really good condition, you want to go with something like, you know, ideally it would be like one owner, which is very rare, maybe two owners. So think about it this way. If you have two owners and each person owned it approximately 10 years, they've had the vehicle for a long time. And people who have something for a long time and take care of it typically, you know, perform regular maintenance. They keep track of service records. They intend to keep it on the road for a long time. They're motivated to do that. So that's the kind of person you want to buy from. Uh, speaking of regular maintenance, you want to know that the thing did have regular maintenance. You know, did it have regular oil changes? Did it have, you know, regular tires and brakes and brake fluid changes and that sort of stuff? And ideally, they would have service records to back all of that up. That's all part of this condition thing, okay? So if you get the service records, thumbs up. If they don't have the service records, you can also run a Carfax. And I do recommend running a Carfax, uh, especially to find vehicles that might have been from the rust belt. You want to you avoid the rust thing. But also in the Carfax, you can find sometimes that the maintenance records are included with that. Depends on the shop, but some shops actually tie their records into Carfax and it will appear there. So that's kind of cool. But if they have them in a folder, so much better, right? Another thing you want to look for is a vehicle that's had no major accidents. Now, a little fender bender, something that kind of messes up the paint or scratches the bumper. That's no big deal. That's going to happen over time. But I'm talking like big accidents, stuff that would end up with the car needing to be rebuilt, like a whole entire rear quarter panel needs to be welded on, cut off the old one, weld the new one on. You don't want to have that, which gets to my next point, which is don't get anything with a rebuilt or a branded title. Now, what do I mean by rebuilt or branded title? So if a car is totaled by the insurance company, and then let's say you buy the car back from the insurance company, and you decide, I love this car so much, I'm going to pay $2,000 more than they would give me to have it rebuilt. Now, you could do that, and the work might be done really well, but 10 years later, 15 years later after that happened, there may not be any records of how well that job was done. So why take the risk, Right. You have other vehicles to choose from, so you can just wait till one comes along that doesn't have the rebuilt title. So there's rebuilt titles, and there's also branded titles, which is kind of the same thing. But branded titles also include things like flood damage. There's been some major hurricanes that just went through Florida and, and moving up into the Carolinas. And cars that come from those places that have been submerged in water, especially if it's salt water, it's from the ocean, you don't want to buy one of those. 
Now, if it's completely submerged, the motor is toast, it's not going to work. But some cars that got a little bit wet, maybe they got their suspension wet or they got some of the electronics wet, those are going to have long-term problems that you can't really see today, but they might show up later. So if there's a branded title from the insurance company that says, hey, this car was, you know, dunked underwater after a hurricane, uh, don't buy it. Bad idea. Another thing you want to look for when it comes to condition is the number of miles on the car. You want to get something with low miles, and that's really kind of, quote, for the year, unquote. And what I mean by low miles, especially for a vehicle like this that's 20 years old, 22 years old, 80,000 would be low miles. 100,000 would be low miles. 120,000 would be low miles. You really can have a high mileage car and have it be in excellent condition if it was maintained and all the maintenance was done. But you really kind of have to do your research. So try to find something with less miles if you can. Not going to be perfect, but, you know, try. Try to do that. With a 4x4, you want to make sure that this vehicle hasn't been beaten to death, especially by, you know, its you know fifth or sixth owner, you know, Beavis and then Butthead. You know, those guys are like, I took it off road, dude. I went out in the mud and uh, crashed into a tree. (laughs) You don't want those cars. You don't want people like Beavis and Butthead driving your car into the ground and then selling it to you. You don't want that. Again, you want to go with the two owners, took good care of it. Somebody who maybe pulled it behind their motorhome really had kind of easy miles. And those vehicles do exist. I don't want to say they're unicorns because they're not. But you've got to look hard to find those, okay? But they're out there. So avoid the beaten 4x4 syndrome. Don't get into somebody else's problem. Also, I mentioned earlier the rust thing, and I'm going to mention something later about rust, which is kind of a big caveat for these cars. But you want to buy a car that wasn't in the rust belt, if you can. Again, check the Carfax, find out, you know, was it sold in Ohio or Pennsylvania or something like that, where they salt the roads. You want to avoid those vehicles if you can. Get something from the West Coast, get something from the desert Southwest, if possible, uh, other parts of the country where they don't salt the roads. Or you can check it out thoroughly, and if it's not rusty, because sometimes people buy a car from California and bring it to a place where they salt the roads, but they don't drive it in the snow, that's okay, right? But you definitely want to check it out. And if you can see rust coming through the paint, just run away. Go. All right. Another thing to look for, straight panel gaps. What do I mean by that? When you're looking at, you know, how the fenders line up with the hood, lines up with the rest of the car, you want to make sure those lines are evenly gapped from top to bottom, from side to side. A lot of times when a car has been wrecked and repaired, if they didn't do a very good job with it, the panels will start close together at the top, and then get wider at the bottom, or vice versa. You want to make sure those panel gaps are straight. You can kind of look at it and go, okay, this car looks like a straight car. That doesn't mean it wasn't in an accident. It could have been fixed properly and still has straight panel gaps afterwards, but you want to look for that initially. You also want to make sure that it's got good paint. You don't want to have to deal with clear coat issues or that sort of thing. Now, I'm not saying not to buy a car that's got some paint issues, because it could be completely straight and everything's mechanically is fine, but the paint just looks a little funky. Eh, you could wrap the car, I suppose, if you want to. And if you get it cheap enough, then you can afford to repaint it. But don't underestimate how much paint and bodywork actually costs, okay? I hear people all the time say silly things like, oh yeah, dude, that's just like, you know, the paintless dent removal guy can pull that out for like a hundred bucks. Or... Yeah, I talked to a paint guy, paint and body guy, and he said that, uh, oh yeah, it would be like, you know, maybe $300 to fix that that big dent and that crushed in fender. 
Are you kidding me? Go get a quick estimate on some of this stuff and you're going to, your jaw is going to drop to the ground. I mean, it seems like oftentimes you can't get away from having any work done for less than like 1500 bucks, 2000 bucks, and it goes on up from there. So don't get stuck in this trap of thinking that, oh, it'll be cheap or, oh, I could do it myself. Because unless you're really good at body and paint, it's going to be spendy. So if you find a vehicle that starts out kind of beat up, it's going to cost you a lot to make it look better. So start with something that looks better from the get-go. Okay. Now, another thing when it comes to condition is no leaks. Hmm. And this counts for both mechanical things and on the inside of the car. So a lot of vehicles over time, their seals around the windows or a sunroof, they can tend to wear out, get dry, brittle, and they can leak. If it's leaking inside, you know, the floor is wet, that sort of thing. That's a bad thing unless you're going to keep it under a carport or in a garage. Okay. Now, if you've got a garage to store it in, you can probably deal with it. But, you know, you don't want a vehicle that leaks, especially in places like where I live, the Pacific Northwest, where while it's hot today, it's going to be raining like crazy. So I don't want a car that leaks. Same way, you don't want a car that's leaking, you know, from the motor or the transmission to the differential. Now, as cars get older, yes, they do develop some drippy stuff here and there. But if you've got oil coming out of the front of the engine or the back of the engine... That could indicate maybe a front main seal or a rear main seal. A you know, front main seal is something you're going to change with a timing belt change. So that can be tough to deal with. A rear main seal, you're going to have to pull the transmission to get to it. If you have a manual transmission, you might need a new clutch or something like that. So you'd be in there doing the work anyway. You just replace that $20 seal. No big deal. But if you just had to do all the work to take your car apart just to replace a $20 seal, that would be a little bit expensive. And it, you know, knocks the value of the vehicle down. So you don't want to do that. Another thing is check all the electrics, all the features, that sort of thing, like uh, turn signals, any electric window switches, lights on the dash, you know, exterior lights. You want to check those. All of those things you want to make sure that they work, you know, as much as possible. You know, if you have some bulbs out in the back, I had to deal with that on my son's car. In the last episode, I talked about how he replaced his Honda Civic with a 1992 Honda Accord that we found quickly. Uh, we had a week, boom, found it for $1,650. Of course, he had to spend a little bit more on license and tax and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's a $2,200 car, a $2,100 car. And the only things really wrong with it were some of the bulbs were burnt out. So I replaced those and it seems to be just fine. He's out driving it right now. So, so but definitely check that stuff out because, you know, a burnout bulb can be one thing, but there could be some other electrical gremlins. So check it over real well. Gets to that condition thing. You want to do that. Now, two big caveats on these Isuzu Amigo slash Rodeo Sports. There was a recall for the rear suspension links that attach to the bottom of the frame. Those links can and do rust, and it was recalled in all the states where they salt the roads. It was like 22 different states. If you have one of those cars, you definitely want to check any of them the suspension links to make sure that they aren't rusty. But if they are rusty, don't buy one. It could fail. So, you know, walk away from that. Have it checked out by a mechanic to make sure it's okay. The second thing, they don't make Isuzu's anymore. 2009 was when they sold the last one here in the U.S. Now, when I say they don't make them anymore, they don't sell them anymore in the U.S. is what I should say. There were lots of rodeos, though. Rodeos with similar parts that you could scavenge from. Uh, some of the interior and body parts may be a little bit tough to find if they're like Amigo slash Rodeo Sport only. But that's really kind of the case with any 20 plus year old car. 
So eh, I just look at it as the cost of doing business. I wouldn't worry about that so much. Also, they made a lot of these things, these two-door versions, worldwide. So this car, the Amigo slash Rodeo Sport, was sold as the MU Mystic Utility or something. And also sold as the Jazz. That was in Japan. The MU and the Jazz was for Japan. And it was sold as the Vauxhall Frontera Sport in the UK, the Opel Frontera Sport in continental Europe, and the Holden Frontera Sport in uh, Australia and New Zealand. So they made a ton of these. I actually kind of geeked out a little bit and went online and looked up in Europe, sort of like, hey, what a, could I take a European trip and go over and buy one of these cheap and maybe drive it around? That's probably a dumb idea, but you know, I might do it because I'm dumb. But anyway, there were a ton. I was surprised. Literally, I'm going through, I'm scrolling down page after page, and I got to like page 18, and I realized, God, I just killed an hour. What am I, stupid? Uh, Don't answer that question. (laughs) I think I am. Anyway, there was a ton of them. So parts availability. Yes, there will definitely be parts available. Not perfect, but, but decent. Okay, so that covers kind of what to look for when you're out shopping for one of these things. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about pricing. So pricing is tough right now, as you know, if you're searching for any sort of used car, truck, SUV. The prices are kind of all over the place. And I have found some of these over the last couple of years that were really, really cheap, really nice condition, but really inexpensive. I mean, I'm talking like $2,300, $2,500, $2,800, that sort of range. But it's not easy to find those. And when they do come up, they're just gone in a matter of hours. So don't count on that. I would say realistically, you're probably going to pay between 4000 to 6000 for what I would call a decent driver that's solid, but maybe not perfect. It's got some minor issues. Maybe it needs tires. Maybe it needs brake pads. Um, maybe they haven't done the timing belt in a while, so you're going to want to do that. And keep in mind, something like that's going to be about you know 1200 bucks if you pay somebody to do it. Less if you can do the work yourself, but not everybody can. Many people can't. Okay, so I would say that. Kind of the sweet spot, um, I would say $7,000 to $9,000 for a really good example. A really good example, right? Something that maybe is even been, it's being sold by a dealer. It's been curated by some dealership. They went out and found this thing, took it in on trade, whatnot. If it's a manual transmission with a V6, it's going to sell quickly. It won't last long, and they'll ask more for it. But if it is a V6 with the automatic which again, I think is sort of the sweet spot for these things. A good vehicle for commuting and weekend fun. Again, 7000 to 9000 I would expect to pay that. And that would be, you know, a nice rust-free, maybe lower mileage example. Now, the best versions of this, I've seen a few that are up in the over 10K, approaching 12K range. Not a ton. There's not a lot out there that are that expensive, but they, you do find those. And people who know that they've got the Holy Grail, again, the six-cylinder with the manual transmission, there are people out there who'll go, oh, I want 17000 for mine. Now, they're not going to get seventeen, not currently. I mean, they might down the road. Remember, you never pay too much. You simply bought too early, right? <laughs> that old adage. But in this particular case, I do think, you know, ten to 12000 is going to be more than enough, more than, you know, you would ever pay for one of these things in the current marketplace. So now you can find good deals for less, like I said, but you have to look and you have to be quick to call and you have to look in a kind of a wide range. 
Now, when I search for these vehicles or something similar, I use autotempest.com. And the cool thing about the Amigo and the Rodeo Sport is you can just, you know, stick with the simple search and you can just put in a Suzu for the brand. You can put in Amigo or Rodeo Sport for the model. You don't have to put the year because they're going to pull up every Amigo and every Rodeo Sport. And then you just put your zip code and you hit nationwide. Click, boom, and you get a whole bunch of stuff from across the country. Now, in any given time, you know, sometimes five cars show up. Sometimes 25 show up. It just depends. And I will say this, the best stuff goes really quick. Like I said, I've seen some of these for 2500 to 3500 They were great. But finding what that price now is uh, difficult. It's crazy. And they're going to last in a major metropolitan market maybe only 24 hours or less. Now, if you live out in some, you know, place that's further out in the country, maybe more suburban, there's not a lot of people who are chasing around looking for these cars, you know, maybe they'll last a few days. Uh, but people will travel across the country to go pick up one of these things because they're really that cool. So keep that in mind. You're going to have to work at it to find something like this, but it will pay off if you find a good one and stick with those price ranges that I just mentioned. Okay, so the Amigo slash Rodeo Sport from 1998 to 2003 is really cool. Again, in my opinion, but I think you're going to find it cool as well, especially when you uh, come across a few and take them out for a drive. You're going to go, this is pretty awesome. If you like, again, this small, boxy, two-door, four-wheel drive, body-on-frame SUV. Now, there are other options, and I'll talk about them here for a moment, because as you're searching, you may stumble upon one of these other things, and maybe that's what you end up buying. I tend to work with the understanding that maybe I'm looking for X, but if I find Y, which is sort of equivalent, I might just buy that because if I find one in good condition, remember, condition trumps kind of everything else, then I might go that route. So what are those other vehicles from the same sort of era? Well, the TJ series from Jeep Wrangler, available from 1997 to 2006, is a huge option in my opinion. It's something you should definitely consider. If it was my money, I would get one with a hard top, make sure it has air conditioning. I mean, you don't want to be in Death Valley without air conditioning or, you know, in the back country without air conditioning. I don't know if you've noticed lately, but, you know, the planet's kind of on fire. So uh, we've had temperatures here in the Pacific Northwest in the last couple of years of like 110, 112. Ah, it's hot at like 85. Come on. AC's like a, you got to have it. And the reason I would say a hard top in a Jeep Wrangler the hard top's removable, so if you decide that, eh, you know, I really want to have a soft top, well, you can put a soft top on it. You could do that, but you still have that hard top. Now, if you get a soft top and later you want a hard top, much harder to find just a hard top. You're going to have to pay a lot of money or do a lot of searching to find one. So start with the hard top, work your way backward if you need to, but definitely start with a hard top. Another thing to look at is the Dodge Raider or its equivalent two-door Mitsubishi Montero also known as the Pajero. I mentioned this earlier, and these were available in the U.S. from like 87 through 1989. But really only the last couple of years could you get a Dodge Raider or the Montero with the six-cylinder. They had like a three-liter six-cylinder, and that's the way you want to go. You don't want to get the four-cylinder version. I think it was a 2.6 liter, but the six is definitely better. It's not super powerful or anything, but you know, neither one gets great fuel economy, just like the uh, Amigo slash Rodeo Sport. So go with more power. 
why not? Right? And these things are kind of bulletproof. They're really cool. They kind of go anywhere, just like the Amigo. So definitely check those out. Now, something smaller and funkier includes maybe the Suzuki Samurai or the Geo Tracker. Or for a real unicorn, you could check out a Daihatsu Rocky. Now, all of these things are definitely smaller, but they're all body-on-frame vehicles, and they definitely have some decent back-road chops. It's just with the less horsepower and smaller motors that come in these things, they're really not going to be great on the freeway. But for off-road or for little backcountry adventures, they might be okay. But I would definitely stick with the 1998-2003 two-door Isuzu Amigo or Rodeo Sport SUV if you can. That would be the target. Well, hopefully this episode has inspired you to take a closer look at the 1998-2003 through two-door Isuzu Amigo or Rodeo Sport SUV. These boxy, fun, and rugged body-on-frame vehicles are an affordable and some say more refined alternative to a Jeep Wrangler that just might be perfect for you if you need a comfortable daily driver during the week that also offers four-wheel drive and extra ground clearance for your backroad adventures on the weekends. Now, I certainly think they're cool and would definitely consider having one in my driveway. And if you like small, boxy, two-door SUVs, I think you should consider the 1998-2003 Isuzu Amigo slash Rodeo Sport as well. And with that, thanks for listening to this week's episode. And be sure to join me next time for another episode to help you find a cool used car, truck, or SUV at a price you'll love. Until then, I'm Gary Crenshaw. This is Better Than New, and I'm really glad you came along for the ride.